What is up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Pin Down. I'm your host, Alex, with your other host, Tyler, from Hoop Venue. And we got a lot to talk about today because last night was a huge night in the NBA. We had the MVP face-off between Nikola Jokic and Joel Embiid, which uh, to me, it lived up to the expectations. I mean, it was really a game dominated by Jokic and Embiid primarily doing the work for their teams. Obviously, Jokic got huge help from his supporting cast uh, in terms of clutch shots, but um, a lot of that was a result of the defense just hounding Jokic the entire game. Embiid was getting to the line. He was hitting big shots. He was getting to the basket. He was knocking down his threes. So to me personally, this game lived up to the hype. It was much better than the March 10th matchup that was supposed to be this legendary game between the Philadelphia 76ers and the Brooklyn Nets. And it just was not. It was an absolute dud. So what were your thoughts on this game? Did it live up to the hype? What are your biggest takeaways? Does this change the MVP race for you? What are your thoughts? I I think it's just perfect that in the game between two leading MVP candidates, one whose case has pretty much been driven by the fact that he's doing all of this with a subpar supporting cast. I think it's only right that that supporting cast ends up swinging the game, right? (laughs) Uh, They... They, they completely obliterated Philly's bench. I mean, no, in a game where – or in a season where Jokic has been – has had like the largest net swing in the league from on the court versus off the court, uh, the team did better with him off the court against Philly. Right. So I think that's just – I think it's just kind of funny uh, in that sense. But uh, no, yeah, it was a phenomenal matchup. I, I thought Jokic and Embiid both kind of played – their brand of ball, and that was pretty exactly. cool to see. It wasn't like it wasn't like Jokic uh, felt pressured to take over the game with scoring and put up dominant numbers. Embiid wasn't doing anything outside of his comfort zone. They both just kind of got theirs. Yeah. Jokic was playmaking and scoring at an efficient level. Embiid was volume scoring at a high level, getting to the line, uh, hitting a lot of face up mid range jumpers, things right. like that. They both were doing their thing, and uh, for me, it just I, I don't like using one game to swing any type of conversation. Right. Uh, I'm a Jokic guy. Even if Jokic had 60, 16, and 15, it's just one game out of the 82-game season. Mm-hmm. I mean, are we going to use Carl Anthony Towns' game from last night to say he's the MVP? Exactly. Why does that – why does why does one game between – I get people like using head-to-head matchups in these type of conversations, but to me, I just don't think one game out of an 82-game season is enough to swing anything – uh, in anyone's favor. And especially in a game where you can't really say either of those two guys were just the sole factor in their team performing how they did. Right. Um, there were huge contributions on both sides. Matisse Thibel, um, I don't know what he ended up with, but I know at one point he had like six steals and three blocks he, or he, something he, like that. Uh, his stat line is honestly like kind of insane. It was It was a very Draymond Green stat line. Nine points, five rebounds, three assists, six steals, two blocks. It was like, dude was just I doing mean, everything. <laughs> he was doing everything. I, I've never seen Jokic get rattled like that. Like, Jokic, um, for me, Jokic is usually one of the most precise decision makers in the league and one of the most accurate passers. There were times when Jokic, like, couldn't go cross court because Thibel was 
there. Like right. He was sitting on the block and he would still run out for the steal. It was crazy. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, you got Bones Highland turning into Steph Curry, which is right. uh, <laughs> that was an interesting development. I remember I looked down on my phone for one second and I hear the the broadcasters go, Oh no! And I look up and I see Bones Highland shooting like a thirty-seven footer, and he and it goes in, and I was like, I was just like, what? In was the that the one where there was like on? a second and a half left on this on the shot clock? I think so. And Andy pulled yeah. it from so deep, like he was like barely on the screen, yeah. and I was just like, what in the world is going on? Boogie with those back-to-back threes in the forest. Oh yeah. Uh, oh man, I, that was just that was. A, a very, very fun game. And I'm glad it was such a team-oriented game on both sides. It wasn't just Jokic and Embiid going uh, blow for blow. It was the entire – everyone was getting into it. Like, the energy was just crazy. Right. And I thought I, – I wouldn't say that was my game of the year, but it was one of – like, start to finish, it was one of the most entertaining games I've watched the entire season. Yeah, and and, and normally, like, you know, in, in regards to, like, the game of the year conversation, there are games that, like – you know, sometimes you tune in for like the second half because it's a close game. You're on, you're flipping through league pass and you see, oh, it's a close game. I'm going to go watch this. And you'll tune in through the second half and you're like, wow, that was a really good game. It was a really good ending to the game. But this game start to finish, like if you sat down and you started watching this game from the beginning, that game was an absolute thriller. Like there's no other way around it. That game had everything like Sixers got out to a really big lead in the first half. And then, you know, the Nuggets started showing some life and clawing their way back close to halftime. They come back in the third third half and Jokic is sitting and, oh, why isn't Jokic back in? But then the bench starts going off a little bit and they start doing their thing. And then all of a sudden it's a tie game with, you know, like seven or eight minutes left and they're just going blow for blow. Teams are just, both teams are just pulling up from three and, you know, guys like Bones Highland are knocking down threes. Jermichael Green is draining baseline jumpers for some reason. Jermichael Green like, turning into Carmelo Anthony was yeah, a very was interesting that? development. They were just, <laughs> that was very interesting. It was, it was just so fun. It was like such a fun game to watch because, you know, I, I definitely think Jokic personally for me deserves the MVP. So I was like, well, it'd be nice for Jokic to win because that kind of supports my opinion like we said one game doesn't determine the mvp race but it was like yeah i kind of wanted the nuggets to win like everyone's gonna everyone's gonna form their own little story in their head so and voters look at these type of like statement games where it's like exactly they did it in 2019 in 2019 this guy in 2019 and 2020 they did it with lebron and Giannis. they were like oh this game is what decides the mvp race and and they tried to do it tonight and, and you know i think in the first half, they kind of expected the 76ers to win it. And so I think a lot of like narratives were starting to get pushed pretty quick. And then, of course, the Nuggets came back and they won it. And it's like, well, does this well now now this game doesn't decide the MVP because the Nuggets won. But if Embiid had won, then it would decide the MVP race. I think like a lot I of people. I almost feel like, yeah, because because Jokic has such a. Uh... Right now, Jokic has such a – I don't want to just say statistical case because the Nuggets tied the Sixers in wins now. He has such right. like a – um, I feel like his case has so much of an advantage over the other guys right now. And voters I, – I don't really want to target any voters because I don't know who's voting or what their thought process is. Right. So I want to make that very clear. I don't really know this. But I have a feeling that a lot of voters are looking for reasons to go with Embiid. Right. And – this would have been that 
Had Embiid, I, I personally do think Embiid outplayed Jokic last night. It wasn't like a huge advantage, but I do think right. he played better personally. Yeah. But if he had played better and gotten the win, that would have been, um, yeah, voters would have really looked at that and been like, well, maybe Jokic is just performing in these games where he's not against other MVP candidates, which wouldn't really make sense because they did beat Giannis and the Bucks by 40 and three quarters. Exactly. Um, and I feel like that kind of got glossed over because I don't even think that was a nationally televised game. Uh, it was just, he just did that and it just kind of got glossed over. Right. But, and uh, also, also Giannis is a, is a better defender than Embiid and he was cooking. I mean, I don't want to say he was cooking Giannis, but I mean, he was just tearing their defense apart, which, you know, Giannis is a better team defender, you know, help defender than Embiid is. And for Giannis or for Jokic to have done what he did to that Bucks defense, I mean, that's more of a statement than what he did last night, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, what's interesting to me is that the, because the Bucks zoned him that game. I remember we talked about this in our prior yeah. episode. Uh, the Bucks zoned him and he picked it apart, right? Like with passing. Right. And it's funny because the 76ers a couple times threw a zone at him. Um, but he couldn't do the same things that he did to the Bucks because of Matisse Thibel. Yeah. When when they would zone up, Matisse Thibel would be in the weak side corner. Jokic couldn't throw those saucers because Thibel was going to steal them. And I just think that's so crazy. Like... The fact that you can take a guy like Jokic, who uh, in most scenarios is the more than I would say I've never seen somebody more comfortable with making ridiculous passes. Like sometimes you'll see people elect to go the easier route. Maybe Magic Johnson could be in that conversation. Mm. But like in terms of just being so comfortable with doing very, very difficult things when passing the ball. And Jokic got taken out of his comfort zone a little bit. I, oh, I think he got sure. a little more comfortable in, at, towards the end of that second quarter mm-hmm. uh, when he threw the the full court touchdown and then the very next play, the no-look and transition. Um, that was beautiful. But, yeah, I've never seen Jokic get taken out of his comfort zone like that. Like, it was almost like he didn't want to uh, make those cross-court finds. Right. And that's a product of Matisse Diable. And another thing, too, on, on the point of – you were talking about how it was such a thriller. How many highlight plays were there last night? I mean, uh, yeah, it was. It, it wasn't just a good game. Where, like it was exciting. It was an engaging game. Yeah, that one pass in transition where uh, Jokic was bringing the ball up the floor, and I forget who the two defenders were. I think it was Matisse Thybul and maybe Harden, but they were kind I of. Know, Tobias Harris is the one. Tobias Harris was the one that uh, where he split the defenders to run out. Yeah, he. Are you talking about the one right before the halftime? No, this one was – I think this one was in the late third or early fourth. But he, like – or I could be completely wrong. But he, like – he was, like, past half court and he threw the ball, like, straight up the middle to – I forget who was cutting. But he, like, split two 76ers defenders and it led to, like, a – I think it was, like, a Monte Morris layup or something like that. But it was – the pass was – there was a there was a full-court outlet pass right before that, and then he did that. Yeah, it was like, no, that, was, that was right before halftime. Yep. Oh, okay, um, okay. Yeah, he caught it with one hand on the board and whipped it with one hand like a football yeah. and got that one. Then the very next play takes the board, runs in transition, and that's – that was Tobias Harris. Uh, he looked at the corner guy That's what it while was. passing yeah. the ball. So Tobias Harris ran out to the corner guy – and then he snuck it right through. I've seen Jokic make that pass a few times, but it was very nice oh, to see yeah, on national TV. Pass. Yeah, because because uh, I think it was Mike Breen. Mike Breen absolutely lost it with that pass. Yeah, and then Kevin Durant <laughs> tweeted about it. Did you see Kevin Durant yeah, tweet about yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. And I, I you <laughs> he know, said, "Hey, Jokic, that was a dime." 
everyone <laughs> talks about how NBA players don't like talk about Jokic enough. Like, you know, other players will have big games and they'll be like, oh man, he's so nice and stuff like that. And it was, it was, it was cool to see, it was cool to see someone like Kevin Durant shout out Jokic like that. I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking well, the it, reason, but I thought that was cool. Yeah, the reason they don't really talk about Jokic, though, isn't anything to do with Jokic itself. It's because, it's because Denver basketball is so hard to access right now. I'm pretty exactly. sure they have the lowest like viewer returns because uh, people in Denver can't even access their games. Right. And, I mean, I guess you could say it's a problem with the with the reigning MVP not having like more than 10, 7 to 10 nationally televised games, not even right. a Christmas game. I would say that in itself is kind of a problem because – why would you want the MVP of your league to be that like unaccessible? You know, exactly. But uh, in general, in general, generally speaking, yeah, it's just hard to access Jokic. So how are they going to talk about him when they can't really see what he's doing? Right. Uh, besides on a highlight tape. Right. And, and one one last thing that I want to say about uh, Jokic and Embiid is, you know, I think fans really like to create drama where there's not any. Um, I saw a lot of people trying to create like some beef between Embiid and Jokic, but people don't realize Embiid has a ridiculous amount of respect for Jokic and Jokic has a ridiculous amount of respect for Embiid. Mm-hmm. Like these two guys think the world of each other. I don't think, I and don't you can think see how they were like joking around on the court. Yeah, they were very friendly. They were, like, the whole game. It's not like they were going. Yeah. Like it was like a one point game in the fourth and they're sitting there like cracking jokes on each other. Like, <laughs> Yeah, they so clearly I, just have the most respect for each other, which is why I don't understand. It, it kind of reminds me of uh, other, other like almost LeBron and Steph, where they have the most respect for each other, but their fans just want to stir up so much beef because of some kind of non-existent rivalry. You yeah. know, and, and that just comes with that just comes with NBA fans wanting drama and narratives and you know all this and that because you know I always I say it all the time. The NBA is just a soap opera for men and. Anytime you can create some drama like that, it's it makes it, you know, it really does make it more fun to watch. But uh, on the topic of big men, uh, Carl Anthony Towns popped off against the San Antonio Spurs for a whopping 60 points. That is a season high among any player. Uh, it also sets the Minnesota Timberwolves franchise record for most points scored in a game. Uh I, I, I was watching this guy. I threw it on after after uh, Nuggets and 76ers, and I was just like, I think he had like, it was like 50 through three quarters, and I was just like. 56. Like, 56, 56 through three quarters. Three. I was like, he are you kidding me? 32 in the third. That's, 32 that's a, in the third that's quarter. That's more, to me, 32 in the third is more impressive. I mean, 60 is impressive, but 32 in the third is more impressive than the 60 as a whole. Scoring 32 points in one quarter is nuts. Like we see guys yeah. have like we see guys have like, you know, oh, Lucas got 20 22 points heading into the uh, heading into the second or Damian Lillard's got 26 points heading into the heading into the third. Uh it's like 32 points in a single quarter. That's a that's a, if someone scores 32 points that. in Think a about- whole game, they're happy with that. If you scored 32 right. points in every single quarter, which is obviously absurd and would never happen, you'd have what is it, 128 points? Yeah, it's ridiculous. And it's crazy to think about because there are 12 minutes in a quarter. So if you score 32 points in a quarter, <laughs> I, I don't know if he played every minute of the quarter. I don't know if he did. That's almost three points per minute. <laughs> Imagine. Each time down the floor, basically, you're hitting a three. And you only made <laughs> like, seven threes. 
That's what's yeah. crazy. I mean, and he only made one mid range shot too. It was it was literally just the paint and the threes. <laughs> and I and I realize I just said it's only seven threes when talking about a center. Obviously, yeah, a center making seven threes is ridiculous. But I'm just saying, in the context of that third quarter, you would think he would just be tossing up threes over and over and over again. He only made seven of them through the entire game. And the fact that yeah, he's doing way, all of this against Jakob Pertl, who is a very good yeah, one of the interior best defender. defender. In the it just I was I was just mind blown. I couldn't believe what I was watching. Yeah, and by the way, uh that is the fifth most points in a quarter in NBA history. There's Clay's thirty seven, yep. Kevin Love's thirty four. George Gervin and Carmelo Anthony both had 33, and then Cat comes in fifth with 32 points in a quarter. And right after the game ended, I only got to catch the fourth, so I only saw Cat score like four points or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, sadly, uh, I was I was making food, and then I checked the NBA app, and I saw Cat has 56 and three quarters. Because I see that tweet, it said, "Is Cat going to go for?" Se-? I see. I saw a tweet. It said, "Is Cat going to go for 70?" And I was like. How many points does he have? So I checked the NBA app and he has 56 and three quarters. And uh, I, I literally ran upstairs so I could catch the fourth. But um, my brother texted me after the game. He just said, 60 points, 17 rebounds, and seven threes is a wild stat line. And I was like, I didn't really think about it like that. Yeah. Like he had 60 and 17 with seven threes. Could you imagine telling somebody after Shaq dropped 60 on his birthday in like 2001 or whatever it was, Imagine going up to him after the game and being, in 20 years, someone is going to match the stat line with seven three-pointers. Another center is going to match the stat line with seven three-pointers. Like, it's, I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's it's hard to wrap your head around. Seven for 11 from three. And it's crazy. I remember when I was watching the game, the broadcaster said, uh, the commentator was like, you know, in NBA, or since the ABA merger, there have only been nine instances, nine instances where a guy has 56 points and 15 rebounds. Carl Anthony Towns is two of those games. He has two of them. That's out of insane. The nine. That's insane. I didn't two know that one. I knew about like there's only like five players in NBA history to have 60 and 17 in the game, but I didn't know that one. That one's equally as impressive. Cat is just, I mean, I wish we would see this more consistent aggression from him. That's always been one of my gripes with him. I know yeah, what he's capable sure. of, but is he going to assert himself offensively right. to do this? Because I think from just a skill set perspective, he's one of the uh, greatest offensive bigs we've ever seen all around. Like For not sure. just the shooting, not just the scoring, but the passing, the off ball play. He runs yeah. around screens like a guard Yeah, off the ball. He's a great offensive rebounder. He's a phenomenal finisher. Like he has the skill set. It's just will he assert himself and and make himself that offensive juggernaut? He was doing that in 2020 in a limited yeah. game sample. He, 2020 is when he really showed what he can be with the keys to the offense. And maybe this unlocks him. I mean, Minnesota's on a hot run. They're right oh, yeah. right below the sixth seed. Oh, I mean, yeah. yeah, they they we could see a cat explosion to end the season and. Timberwolves are not a team I'd want to see in the playoffs. No, and and I want to talk a little bit more about the fight for the sixth seed. But real quick, one one person I do want to shout out is Chris Finch because I think mm-hmm. just about any other coach in the NBA, if a guy is like, you know, they were they were kind of blown. It did get close, so I will say him putting Cat back in was not like kind of like stat padding or anything because it was getting somewhat close like the Spurs got it within nine at one point and then I think 
Yeah. Uh, then they put Cat back in. So it's not like it's not like they had this massive lead that oh Cat's coming in for garbage time to chase stats. No, he it was still a fairly close game. But shout out to Chris Finch for let it, letting him go back in there and do that. And I remember he he went in and he missed the first free throw. And everyone was bummed about that. That bummed me out. Um, so he had 57 at that point. They go to the other mm-hmm. end, play some defense. They get the ball back. Uh, and they finally ended up getting it to Cat. I, I don't know if it was a few possessions later or that possession. They got they got the ball to the to Cat at the top of the key. And I think it was Pirtle guarding him. I can't remember exactly who was guarding him. But he jab steps a little bit. And, I think it was you know, Zach Collins. Zach Collins, yeah. It, jab steps a little bit. Didn't really get any space on it. He does it again, gets a little more space, and he's like, screw it. Pulls it, drains it. it. I lost my mind, dude. I was like, because my dad's a big Timberwolves fan. So I texted him. I was like, did you see that? Like, that was insane. And he was like, my dad was like, that's a bad shot. I was like, what? I was like, what? what?" I'm like, he's a 40% shooter from three. I'm like, he had space. He got Zach Collins to step back a little bit i'm like that's not a bad shot get over you old man but (laughs) that that game was just so much fun to watch and it kind of ties into what you mentioned a second ago about this fight for the sixth seed and i was like my dad and i were texting i was like you know cat getting 60 would do so much i mean winning the game obviously is going to build them some momentum but uh you know him getting 60 that's just like instant vibes in the locker room. Like you can't, you can't make anybody happier than that than scoring. You know, I think they had what like 149 points in the game and cat scored 60. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, that is. That was flawless. And now yeah. I believe uh, the standings. I'm going to pull them up real quick. Uh, the Timberwolves are now only. I think they're one and a half games they're, behind the they're Nuggets. They're one and a half games behind the Nuggets, and they are th- four and a half games ahead of the eighth seed. So they are now closer to the sixth seed than they are the eighth seed. And yeah, they're closer. They're closer to actually. They're closer to the four seed than they are the eight seed right now. That's even crazier. And they're only three games behind four. Jeez. So the the thing that they really have to bank on, I don't know. I don't want to say bank on it. Um, but, you know, if Utah gets in a slump, even if Denver, I don't see Denver getting in a slump simply because Jokic is Jokic. Uh, I don't see Dallas getting in a slump because Luka is Luka, unless he just ends up cooling off, which is entirely possible. But um, I'd say if any team is going to start sliding, I would say it's Utah. Um, not saying they will, but if I had to like bet on a team to fall out of the top four, I would probably bet on Utah. But if any of those three teams start to slip a little bit and Minnesota continues to rack up these wins, like they could avoid the plan. We we've been calling them a play-in team all season. But there's a very there's a very realistic chance. Mind you, they're winning all these games while Anthony Edwards is in a really bad shooting slump. Like he's been mm-hmm. he's been not good lately. So the fact that they're still racking up these wins while Anthony Edwards is not playing well. If he starts to pick up again, which I really think he will because he always seems to kind of pick things up at the end of the season. We saw it last year, and these slumps don't last forever for him. He usually gets out of it. If he starts playing well, Cat keeps playing well, D'Lo is playing fantastic basketball lately. He's been playing fantastic basketball pretty much all year, but he's been great lately. Um, Yeah. If they're able to rack up, you know, 
four or five more wins and the other teams above them win, lose one or two here and there over the next five games, you know, all of a sudden that four through seven spot, that gets, that's, that's going to get shaken up a lot. And mm-hmm. the Timberwolves avoiding the play in, I think would be so cool because when they made the, when they made the playoffs, I think it was in what, 2019, um, the, it, was it was 2018. Like, yeah. 2018. They were like the seventh seed. It wasn't mm-hmm. really the most exciting thing in the world. They played the Rockets in the first round and they just got absolutely pummeled. So I think them <laughs> get the fact that like, oh, we made the playoffs. Well, actually, we made the play in because we're the seventh seed. It's like, oh, that would suck so bad if they ended up losing, God forbid, two in the play in and then they get knocked out. It's like, well, we did all that for nothing. And we probably are, we're, we're a better team than we were then. And I, I just really hope, you know, I'd hate to see like Utah, Dallas or Denver because I like those three teams. I would hate to see one of them have to play in the play in. Mm-hmm. But I would really, really like the Timberwolves to sneak their way into a top six seed and just avoid it altogether. I think that would do a lot for them. Um, I think it would prove a lot to them, to, to, to each other and to themselves as a team and kind of build their team identity even further. Uh, but yeah. There's also something to think about too, though, um, because as the standings as it currently stands, Minnesota at seven would would be a matchup with Memphis at two, and I think they are that is the best matchup Minnesota could possibly want is Memphis. Yeah, uh, I think so. We see it every time they play. Minnesota has the tools to upset Memphis; like they are perfectly built for Memphis. It seems like. Yeah. And the thing is, would you rather risk be playing in the play-in? to match with Memphis or slide up to six and face Golden State in the first round. I don't know if anyone wants to see Golden State in the first round. Um, yeah, I, especially I when you have a guy like Cat, who, granted, is a great interior scorer, but isn't going to really take advantage of the Warriors' lack of size through post-dominance. Right. Like, if any team wants to play Golden State, it's Denver because Jokic can exploit Golden State's issues, yeah, right? for sure. Minnesota can't really do that, but... I don't think you want to risk playing in the plan at all because like we see in March Madness, for example, one game samples are not going to go to the better team every time. Mm-hmm. Minnesota could very well lose in the play-in while being 12 games ahead of the 10 seed, which is absolutely, I think, is ridiculous. There has to be some kind of games requirement to yeah, even be yeah, in the play-in. I, I, like I, the I, fact I, that the Minnesota Timberwolves are 10 games above 500 right. and could potentially miss the playoffs to a team that's 10 games below 500 is absolutely atrocious. Yeah, and that should uh, not be a thing. <laughs> there's I mean, there's a chance. I'm not saying it'll happen, but there's there's a chance Minnesota gets to 50 wins and is still in the plan. The the odds of that happening are pretty <laughs> slim simply because everyone else in the West is probably going to hit 50 wins before them and they'll probably lose a handful of games. It's it's not likely. I could see them finishing as like a 45-46 win team. But there is a small chance that that they could end up a 50-win team and miss the playoffs, which is crazy to think of, or uh, miss miss the playoffs like the sixth seed and have to play in the play-in, which could, they could still miss the playoffs through the play-in, which is insane that a 50-win team, I don't know if my math even checks out here in terms of the rest of the games for each individual team and how many of them play each other and this and that, but... Uh, it's just crazy to think about how the play in, I think the play in is a good thing because like 
last night I was watching a Timberwolves and Spurs game. Like that's unusual because it's the Spurs and the Timberwolves and they're not very big markets and this and that. Um, so the fact that like these games have so much more meaning right now, like the Lakers and the La- and the Raptors last night had so much more meaning because of the play in, but you know, it kind of stinks that, you know, you're a, you're a 57% win percentage team and you're going to have to play in the play in. You might miss the playoffs and end up in the lottery. Like mm-hmm. that's, that just sucks. I don't know. And I think like a, a, a win percentage requirement or a, uh, X amount of games above the next lowest seed or something like that. You get to avoid the plan. I don't know. People much smarter than me would have to figure it out, but I agree that the cracks in the plan tournament are starting to be revealed. And so I think something needs to be done to address that, to make sure that like, you know, a team like Minnesota doesn't get screwed over after having their best season since 2018. Yeah. And you know what? It's crazy how close we are. There's less than a month till the play-in. Less mm-hmm. than a month. It's crazy. I mean, uh, I feel like we say this every year, but like th- this season has really felt like it's been a breeze. Yeah. Like, this has been such an enjoyable season from start to finish that it's like usually this is the, the part of the season where everyone dreads. Where it's like once the All-Star game's over, all you have to look forward to is the playoffs. So right. it's just it's just these regular season games over and over again, like just waiting for the playoffs. But with the way these performances have been happening, like this has been the most exciting part of the season. Exactly. Just just the offensive explosion. You know, it's crazy. I'm pretty sure uh, so far in the month of March, we're halfway through March. Uh, the league has had almost a 116 offensive rating this oh month. Oh my gosh. Um, clearly something to do with the performances. Right. <laughs> but uh, I mean. Uh, keep it going, right? I like I like checking the NBA app and seeing people going for fifty seven every night. Yeah, you know? right. That's it's easy cool. content too. Like I, I was watching the game last night, yeah, trying yeah. to yeah, trying to figure out what video I'm going to do next, and then Cat dropped sixty. I'm like, well, I'm going to do a video on Cat now because he's he's a big topic and big games makes for big views. So I was like, screw it, that makes my life easy. And personally, um, I guess if any content creators are listening to this. Uh, the videos usually, in most cases, the videos that perform best are where you uh, address a small market superstar because oh, yeah. they don't get as much love. Yep. They don't get as much love. So, like Alex said, Carl Anthony Towns is gonna that's gonna be a good performing video. I'm just yeah, saying. If, I'm if calling you want it now. easy, that's easy gonna... views, easy views. Carl Anthony Towns, anyone from the Minnesota Timberwolves, Toronto Raptors, guaranteed views. I say uh, Memphis <laughs> I Grizzlies. I say that, and I'm going to turn around and make five more Steph Curry videos. <laughs> I'm like, small market is how you get views, and I'm going to make a Steph Curry and Draymond video next. Speaking of Steph Curry and Draymond Green, uh, Draymond Green returned uh, for the Golden State Warriors last night, and uh, ultimately they got the win over the Washington Wizards. And big night from Steph Curry after uh, a lot of people have been talking about, oh, Steph, it doesn't look the same anymore and this and that. And he's shooting not very well. Uh, he just doesn't look like Steph anymore. And then, of course, Draymond comes back and all is right in the world. So what did you well, think? That's what happens of, when you're a Draymond merchant, you know? No, yeah, Draymond kidding. merchant. Oh, no. my gosh. <laughs> no. In all seriousness, though, I, I Steph has been my favorite player in the league for years now. And – um, that's just because of how watchable he is. I don't think there's ever been a player in NBA history, like maybe Kobe, maybe Michael Jordan, prime LeBron, but 
In terms of just pure peak watchability, I don't know if there's a player in NBA history more watchable on a night-to-night basis than Steph. Like, yeah. even just last season, the Warriors were kind of hard to watch at times because uh, Kent Bazemore and Kelly Oubre were like, Ugh. I mean, they would, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a pretty mucky team, right? But <laughs> Steph Curry alone would have me turning on games where they're facing the Orlando Magic on a Thursday evening. Right. <laughs> like, it, it's he's such a draw, and it's so exciting to see him play like this. And... When I turn on a Warriors game and I just see Steph um, doing these things, hitting a 30-footer and dancing, and the crowd's getting into it, Draymond jumping off the bench and screaming at anyone who misses a shot, (laughs) uh, doesn't make a rotation. It's just, I think the Warriors are just so watchable. And it's been, like, uh, getting to me this season when Steph has has been struggling with the slump and whatnot, uh, with the Warriors just weren't as watchable. And I didn't realize how much of their watchability comes from Steph. Like, yeah. I always thought it was the system, every, the way it flowed. Obviously, Steph being the superstar makes it more watchable. But it's, it was to the point where I, di- I didn't even want to watch their games anymore because Steph wasn't stepping. <laughs> but right. when he's when he's doing this type of stuff, it's all-time watchable. And uh, I think Draymond plays a huge role in that, too. Not just Absolutely. Steph's performance, but the team's energy as a whole. And only Draymond, only Draymond could come back. And in his very first game back, have six, seven, and six, and be a plus twenty-four in twenty minutes of play. A, a team Only Draymond high, Green. a team high plus twenty-four. Only Draymond Green could 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 do that. And uh, I just think that that I don't want to say the missing piece because we already knew Draymond was a huge piece of this team for right. all of their title runs and things like that, but. Um, I think the Warriors are really going to start to pull it together and, and close out the season and show everyone just how good they are. Because I think people forgot how good they are because of the stretch without Draymond and with Steph struggling. Um, this is a team that started 28-6, and six and they didn't have Clay Thompson. Jordan Poole is playing the best basketball of his life right now. Mm-hmm. Steph Curry is getting back into a rhythm. Clay Thompson is starting to show flashes on both ends that he's going to return. His defense has been phenomenal the last few games. And... Albeit he is still forcing some offense, um, you can tell he's starting to catch more of a rhythm with Jordan Poole in the starting lineup. Yeah. Um, Their defense was a top 10 defense of all time before Draymond went down. Mm -hmm. So those problems probably are going to start to go away too. And they're really starting to put it all together. And like I said, this is not a team anyone wants to see in the playoffs. Not just in the first round, not in the second round, not in the NBA Finals. You do not want to see a fully healthy Golden State Warriors because they will, on both ends of the floor, just drain your team. Yeah. Drain your team. Like, they're a walking mismatch for almost every team in the league except for Denver, like I said. You have you have the Bucs, right? The Bucs, say they meet with the Bucs in the finals. Um, the Bucs don't really have anybody to step out on those screens and guard Steph. You don't want Giannis playing 30 feet out. Look at what just happened when the Warriors played the Bucs and – Steph, uh, they, they, Mike Budenholzer literally said, we're going to throw the kitchen sink at Steph. Mm-hmm. He had eight points, eight points. And Wiggins, Poole, and Clay combined for like 88. <laughs> like, and, and, and they killed the Bucks. They killed yeah. them. So it's like, um, okay, you don't want Giannis playing 30 feet out, but then who's going to step out on Curry on a high pick and roll? Brooke Lopez? Bobby right. Portis? Come on. And like I said, they're just a walking mismatch because it's not like Giannis can abuse their size on the other end because he's not a post-up big. He He's going to try and go downhill. Draymond Green can guard downhill. 
on anyone. So, like I said, they're just a walking mismatch for all these teams because of how flexible their lineups are. Draymond can play the five or the three. They can run small ball with Looney. It's just like, it's so weird. It's so weird. And there's just so many different dynamics to that team that when they get going, when Steph is going with his shot, when Draymond is is there bringing the energy, when Clay is catching a rhythm. Right. um, How do you defend it? Uh, What do you do? You can't keep throwing everyone at Steph if the team if the teammates are combining for ninety. But yeah. you also can't leave Steph in, in single coverage because they'll drop forty seven on sixty five percent like he did last night. Right. So it's, I mean, that's the thing that's so interesting about Steph because uh, we talk about how uh, he hasn't been getting as many on ball reps this year, and that's been a main criticism of Steve Kerr from Warriors fans. Um, he's like a ninety fifth percentile isolation score in terms of efficiency right now, but. Yeah. Uh, Teams are never going to leave him in isolation because if they no. do, like I said, 95th percentile, you can't leave Steph Curry in isolation. Right. But you also can't set throw the kitchen sink at him because now those passes aren't going to Kent Bazemore and Kelly Oubre. They're going to Klay Thompson, Jordan Poole, and Draymond Green. And it's just – this team is just – it's a recipe. And I think you at a certain point when you start playing a certain brand of basketball in 2015, seven years later – it shouldn't still be this unguardable. And that's a testament to the greatness, offensive greatness of Steph Curry. Yeah. No matter what, there's no scheme for it. You can't scheme for it. No. There's no Steph Curry scheme. You just have to hope he's missing. That's really all it comes down to. Yeah. And I, I just think, you know, you can you can make the argument that, and I don't personally agree with this, uh, people make the argument that, you know, the Warriors are a heliocentric offense around Steph, which I don't necessarily agree with. I think a heliocentric offense, the entire offense is running through one player and they're, they're you know, entirely responsible for creating and generating the points for their team. And with Steph, I just don't think, I don't think you can look at the Warriors offense and call it a heliocentric offense because it's not. So much offense is being ran through Draymond Green. A lot of offense, even... Even Kevon Looney has offense ran through him, um, and and it's because the reason that the, the reason that this works is because you know, oh Steph Curry's a gravity merchant. I mean, it's because his his gravity is so strong that you you can get away with running your offense through guys who like guys like Kevon Looney who may not necessarily be the best passers or playmakers in the world, but when you've got a guy like Draymond Green playing uh, playing alongside Steph, it just it opens everything up because Draymond is so good at finding and creating and screening and getting opportunities for his teammates that literally nobody else is capable of seeing. Like he's manipulating, he's manipulating the opposing team's defense during a possession without the ball in his hands, which I think is just insane that someone is capable of doing that at such a high level and the fact mm-hmm. that it doesn't necessarily result in big stat lines is kind of hilarious to me that like there's this player that's so good but you look at the box score and you're like seven, oh, tri- tri- seven, triple single triple <laughs> single it's like yeah. oh he, he he shot 33% from 3 it's like yeah but like yeah, everyone just everyone changed, just kind of agrees just... that like Draymond's a great player it's 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 yeah, this guy just completely changes the entire game on both ends of the floor, but then yeah. he puts up six, five, and five. And it's yeah. like, what? Yeah. What? What? 
He was the most impactful player in the game with six, six, and five. <laughs> and, and one more, one more player that I want to talk about from the Warriors before we move on to the next topic. Uh, this is a guy I've kind of been high on throughout the season. Jonathan Kaminga just continues to put it together, and mm-hmm. like twelve points, you know, great. Obviously, Steph had forty-seven, Clay had twenty, Jordan Poole had twenty. There's only so many shots in a game. Um, so 12 points at a glance, you know, it's not that great, but eight rebounds, three assists, two steals, two blocks. He shot, uh, 62 and a half percent from the field and 40% from three on five attempts. And I just, the more I watch of him, the more I'm just like, this guy is going to be so freaking good. It's not even funny. Like the amount of athleticism that he has, the amount of Insane. defensive potential that he has. I'm like, if dude, if you ever, if you ever get a mid range game, if you ever get some pretty, if you get decent at creating your shot from beyond the arc, it's over. This dude has just an absurd amount of potential. His athleticism is up there with any other young player in the entire NBA right now. His his physical sure. tools that he has on the defensive end are arguably just as good as any other player in the NBA, aside from maybe Evan Mobley, simply because Mobley is a defensive freak of nature that we haven't seen in a really long time. But Jonathan Kaminga, I just wanted to shout him out because the more I watch of him, I did a video on him earlier in the year and I was already a little bit high on him. But, you know, as the season progresses, I'm just like, this guy, this guy's going to be a star. Yeah, he. I just love my favorite part about him. Like you mentioned, the athleticism, the physical tools, things like that. My favorite thing about him is just the sheer audacity of, of his style of play. Like, yep. I've never. I, it's so rare to see a rookie on a contender this comfortably aggressive. Like, yeah. he'll take the ball and, from the top of the key, and next to Steph Curry, Jordan Poole, and Clay Thompson, and say, "Get out of the way! I'm about to get to the rim." That is just the sheer audacity. Like, I feel like that's what Warriors fans forever have wanted from Andrew Wiggins, who would rather uh, create a perimeter shot. Jonathan Kamiga gets the ball, and he's like, all right, I'm about to kill this defender with a series of crossovers and spins yeah. and, and either earn a trip to the line or put him on a poster. Yeah. Like His ball handling ability just is sheer, nuts. It's insane. It's insane. How tall is he? Is he 6'10"? I think he's uh, like 6'9", 6'8", 6'9", something like that. I don't know how tall he is. Let, um, me, look. let me look real quick. He is he's six eight. He's six eight. Okay. So six eight, Jonathan Kaminga is playing. Oh my gosh, man! Yeah, he's he's freaky good. I'm I'm pretty sure he's shooting like seventy six percent at the rim right now. Yeah, yeah, um, it's, it's obviously crazy. Obviously, a lot of Warriors uh, finishing numbers get juiced because a lot of those are cuts off of like Curry right. gravity, like you said, Clay gravity. Mm-hmm. But um. Not all of Jonathan Kaminga's are, are easy looks. He's he's self-creating a lot of dunks and layups and mm-hmm. uh, on the offensive glass too, like put back dunks and things like that. And he's also a, a huge like electrifier. Whenever yeah. he does something, the team gets into it. Great. The team energy. leans into great those like highlight guy. plays, right? Great energy guy. And uh, I'm glad the Warriors consistently give him more and more reps. He's clearly to me a playoff rotation player right now. Yeah, and for sure. No doubt. I think and I also, on top of that, I love his confidence to shoot because that was like one of his flaws coming in, right? Like they were like, mm-hmm. I don't know if he can shoot. He won't be able to space the floor. 
if he's open, he's going to shoot it almost every time. Right. He Granted, he would rather attack off the catch, but in general, if you leave him, he will pull it. And it's not like he's a very, very low percentage shooter either. He's not a great shooter, but he will shoot it and he will make you pay. Like I've seen games, I think it was the Utah game, where he just con- was consistently just knocking down the open threes that they were giving him. He can hit those threes, and he right. will. And for me, it's just been such a, a good showing from him as a rookie to do the things that he's done within that system and offense. And mm-hmm. being an immediate contributor to arguably the best team in the NBA to me is just awesome. I love yeah. it. And if you get Steve, uh, you, you if you get Steve, you, if you get Steve Kerr to give you minutes as a rookie, this many minutes as a rookie, you're doing something right. Right, and and you can say what you want about the war, the rest of the Warriors' young cast. I know a lot of people uh, aren't too high on James Wiseman, um, right. guys like that. But I mean, uh, think about just five years into the future. Uh, however, the rest of the pieces look. I feel like personally, I can say Jordan Poole and Jonathan Kaminga alone is a is a ridiculous pairing for the future. Yeah. I mean. Two guys that have already pretty much been perfect, seamless fits into a system where they're both extremely young and unpolished players at this point. I mean, yeah, Jonathan Kaminga's potential is through the roof. And yeah. the fact that, like I said, he he, see, he was drafted to be a project. So the fact that he's a project and an immediate contributor to a contender just shows the type of player he is. He's going to be an amazing player. He just is. Yeah. So moving on to the next topic, uh, Trey Young, who some might call the Eastern Conference Steph Curry, uh, has been (laughs) on fire lately. Uh, In the last two games, he scored 47 points, uh, five assists, and seven three-pointers. And then last night, he scored 46 points, 12 assists, and five three-pointers and you know i'm not i'm not entirely sure what the eastern conference standings look like and kind of how far back they are yeah they're they're still four games back from the seventh seed five games back from the sixth seed but uh they finally worked their way out of that 10th seed spot that they were at uh they passed charlotte granted they're only half a game ahead of charlotte for the 10th seed but uh trey has been on fire lately uh they took down the clippers a few games ago which i was at and he was just in complete control of that game um it was really fun to watch and i i think he's kind of flown under the radar which is so weird to think about for a guy who's putting up such big numbers and having such an amazing impact on the offensive end of the floor um i don't know it's just it's weird that he hasn't been talked about more with how amazing he's been i mean he's he's been one or two, depending on how you look at it, best playmakers in the entire NBA. And just feels like no one's really talking about it that much. Yeah. And you know, Atlanta and Charlotte, uh, just a half game difference. Uh, they play tomorrow. So that'll be interesting Ooh. to see who, who takes the advantage at the nine and 10. But um, yeah, Trey Young is just, the only way to describe it is just offensive brilliance, right? Like yeah. the guy is just, he just, exerts offense he's a ridiculous decision maker and playmaker uh, out of the pick and roll especially where he can get in, get right in between the defense and we we talked about this the, the the ability to just 
do so much in between while being just 6-1. And the extended range she brings to the game because you have to almost blitz him in the pick and roll because if you play drop or, or even just hedge, he's going to manipulate you uh, to where you're not in the play anymore if you're a big. Like, he, he turns bigs into non-factors on defense. Yeah, It's very, very hard to guard a pick and roll with Trey Young as the point guard because of his decision-making vision and, and ability to now hit these threes at such a high clip. One criticism of him was that he would shoot like Steph, but he could never actually get the percentages up there. Right. He would just shoot to shoot, it felt like. Mm-hmm. This year, he's shooting over 38%, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um, And with the degree of difficulty, like he's been one of the very, very be- the best shooters in the NBA this season. Oh, without a doubt. And, and that doesn't even take into account his mid-range scoring. I mean, he's been he's legitimately one of the right. best mid-range scorers in the entire league. His entire offensive, I mean, he's just one of the best offensive players I, I've ever seen. It's just, it's ridiculous. And um, you can say what you want about his defensive problems. He definitely holds his team back at a great level on that end because it's really hard to build a good defense when you have a guy like that who can just be attacked. Yeah. But um, he's still such a valuable player because he just produces so much offense. Mm-hmm. And, and no matter how bad his defense gets, he'll never be uh, – an unplayable player or whatever, because the offense is just compounding so much more value. Right. It's like uh, they, they have, I'm pretty sure they still have the number two offense in the NBA right now, which is just insane in such a talented league. Like looking across the board, all of these teams that have such well put together offenses. And you look at Trey young, pretty much being the only high level creator on the roster yeah. and them being the number two offense. It, it reminds me of uh I mean, this is kind of a bold statement, but it does remind me of Steve Nash in a way. Like Steve Nash was obviously oh, taking sure. it, taking for it, sure. taking it to another level with his like ability to produce shots. But uh, yeah, where it's like one high level creator and some solid play finishers, and you're guaranteed an elite offense. That's how it feels with Trey Young because with the ball in his hands, he's just so good at everything. Yeah, and forty seven points, forty six points back to back. Um, on on. Back to back nights, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, not just games. Mm-hmm. Not just games. He combined. He scored a combined 93 points in 24 hours. Think about that. <sighs> That's insane. That is just. And scoring's not even his best attribute. Right. He can take over games with scoring when he needs. But what he's best at is creating for his team, creating mm-hmm. for John Collins, Clint Capella, Kevin Herter, guys like that. He's a creator. But when he needs to take over the game of scoring, I mean. He's already, I hate to be like, I hate to talk about basketball like this, but he has that gear, that gene where it's like he can turn it on at any point. Yeah, yeah. And we saw that in the playoffs against the Knicks especially. Like, mm-hmm. he can play the role of the villain and pour it on a team when needed. Um, yeah, and I don't even think it's like... a 47-point playoff game against Milwaukee too. Yeah, and I don't even think it's like a like – a bad thing to say like a player has that like gear that they can turn on or or that – switch that they can flip some guys feed off of stuff like this like it 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 gives them motivation it it juices their i mean it gets the adrenaline going and i mean humans it's a scientific fact that when you get your adrenaline going you're going to perform better physically uh and whatever you're doing you're you're gonna you're gonna do it better simply because adrenaline is a hell of a drug i mean it is and (laughs) For guys like when Trey Young was in Madison Square Garden and they're booing him and they're chanting F Trey Young and all this stuff and fans are spitting at him and stuff like that, you know, 
that's got to get your adrenaline pumping, especially when you're winning. And he's just making all these daggers and causing so many problems for that Knicks team. It's like, you know, no wonder he's performing well. This probably he's probably having the most fun he's ever had in his entire life out there. <laughs> and, he's having the time of his life. Yeah, and you talked about the fact that that you know he is a defensive liability, and I, no one's going to ever sit here and argue that he's not. Uh, but when you you look at last year. I mean, obviously, the Knicks are the Knicks, and they had their fair share of problems last year, but they beat a fully healthy Knicks team, and then they went up against the 76ers, and they beat a fully healthy 76ers team. And Then, then they went up 3-2 on the Bucs. They went up 3-2 on the Bucs, and they almost went to the finals. So, for all of his flaws on defense, they've shown that you can cover it up, and you can make up for it. It's just a matter of, I mean, really, the biggest problem is just that his team hasn't been performing up to what they need to be doing in order to get them to a higher seed. I feel like it's pretty I agree. simple. And, and I mean, that's really yeah, the biggest problem to me. Their defense hasn't been at the same level, and a lot of that has to do with players just not playing at the same level. Like, I think it's very fair to say that Clint Capella hit a huge regression this year from last year. Mm-hmm. I don't know why or how. But, like, defensively especially, he just hasn't been that elite defender from last year. Like, I think he was arguably, like, all defense last year. And this yeah. year, I wouldn't even put him close to that discussion. Not like, last year, I, I honestly think uh, this is a pretty good comparison to me. Clint Capella last year kind of reminds me of Jared Allen this year. Mm. Um, In terms of what they were bringing to the to the game, I would say Jared Allen has a, a bit more offensive skill. Like, he has that mid-range jumper. He's a bit better with, like, creating his own post hook and things like that. But in general, like, a rim-running defensive, elite defensive anchor. That's kind of what they both are and were. And Clint Capella this year just hasn't been that guy. And I don't know, like I said, I don't know what it is. I don't know if uh, it's just a normal regression. But I feel like this is kind of a trend with Clint Capella. Hasn't he done this before with 2018 and 2019? He was amazing on the 2018 Rockets. And in 2019, he just, he was still good, but he wasn't 2018 level. Yeah. 2021 he's back he's peaking better than ever now this season he's not playing too hot again i don't know if that's just a consistent trend with him if he just has random spikes in his game uh if he's hurt i don't know what it is but clint capella being that defensive anchor and not being at the same level has obviously hurt their defense a lot it's like if even rudy gobert this year i would say has probably hit he's not playing at the same level he was last year defensively playing right. the best basketball of his career offensively but For defensively sure. he hasn't been as good as last year that's reflected right. in the Jazz defense dropping so much. When you have a guy who you're reliant on as an anchor, that's kind of how Atlanta was, an anchor, mm-hmm. uh, and, he, and he's not bringing the same value, you're just not going to be a great team defense. It's not right. going to happen. And the Hawks relied on him a lot in the playoffs. They, they relied on John Collins even to be one of their best man defenders. And what's more impressive is that they were doing all that without DeAndre Hunter, who's probably their best perimeter defender. For sure. So – for them to have this huge defensive fall off, I don't really know what to attribute it to, but uh, it's pretty bad. Like I think their defensive rating is around 115. Bad. Just bad. So one more thing that I want to talk about, and we didn't really plan to talk about this, but on the topic of teams with terrible defenses, um, what's going on with the Los Angeles Lakers? I mean, last night, I don't oh, know if you really? I don't know if you watched this game, <laughs> but I know you're a Lakers fan, so I'm sorry for bringing I it didn't. up. Dude. <laughs> Some of the stuff, like the clips and whatnot that I saw from that game, it was like, I got like secondhand embarrassment watching it. 
It was really bad. Like nasty stuff. It's I'm gotten not, to a point I'm, where the only way the Lakers win is if LeBron scores fifty. <laughs> yeah. And I'm 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 not I I don't claim to be the biggest like LeBron hater in the world. I'm more or less indifferent on the LeBron thing. I you know, I have my opinions. Everyone's gonna have their opinions on LeBron. You know, I, I'm I'm comfortable in saying that I'm pretty unbiased when it comes to LeBron, but the stuff I saw from him last night, like that was embarrassing. It was like, dude, the when he when he elbowed Pascal Siakam and acted like Siakam had fouled him, and then somehow <laughs> LeBron ended up taking free throws, even though the highlight clearly showed that LeBron elbowed him when he was trying to save the ball from going out of bounds, and he took the ball and he literally like slings it like right at Scotty Barnes' face. I was like. Listen, man, I understand you want the ball to go out of bounds and and you get the ball back. But I was like, you like slung the ball at <laughs> this dude's face like as hard as you could. Like when he was taking the ball and he was slamming it on the ground and like yelling at, at the team and stuff. I'm like, I understand you're frustrated, but like it was just hard to watch. I was like, this is kind of I don't know. Like I said, I got secondhand embarrassment from it. I was just like, this is kind of wild to see on TV. <laughs> My problem with the LeBron, like, out-of-bounds thing wasn't with the actual throw itself. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with what he did throwing the ball-wise because, I mean, right. I don't think it was ill intent. You know, I don't think he was trying to hurt Scotty Barnes or anything. He was just trying to make the right play. Right. My problem was after that happened, like, right after it, he, like, tried to square up with Scotty Barnes. Did you see that? He, like, got yeah, mad yeah, at Scotty Barnes up, for being it, there. It was like, <laughs> what did he do? Like, he didn't do anything. He, he was just laying on the ground. Maybe there was something that that I missed before that happened. Like, maybe uh, before the save itself, maybe Scotty, like, made contact with LeBron, and that's kind of why he was on the ground. Or I, I didn't really look into that. I just saw the actual throw and then the reaction itself. But, uh, right. yeah, LeBron being my second favorite player in NBA history, I can personally say last night was uh, very questionable from the antics he was pulling. That's always been a criticism of LeBron, uh, just the random antics. Like, I yeah. love when LeBron – goes into like a supervillain mode and he's kind of just uh the silent killer right he's not right right uh, be, I being like that all too. goofy that's what i that's he's so what, goofy that, bro like that's the, yeah. thing, the word to describe lebron he's such a goofy dude <laughs> like he's just he, i don't know like that memphis game when he was taught when he was he was talking trash then when they mm. talk trash back lebron goes don't do all that talking now yeah <laughs> he's, I, I was like so goofy and that's when that's when LeBron's always been at his best, like in Miami and his second stint in Cleveland, when he just like, you know, put his head down and put the work in and wasn't like, you know, yelling at the refs or trash talking the other team or like trying all these like goofy things and being ridiculous and flopping around. It's like you're you're a much I, I don't know if this is like bad for me to say, but you're a much better player when you don't do all of that stuff. And yeah, like I, I don't know if I want to get into this necessarily, but LeBron's been like obviously scoring in crazy numbers lately, which is great. Like it's very impressive what he's doing. Don't get me wrong. Uh, the scoring output that he's been producing is, I mean, I think it's currently leading the league in scoring, but there, <laughs> I've seen so many times 
He's just literally not getting back on defense at all. Like mm-hmm. LeBron's defense lately has been horrible. Like, I don't think there's any other and way around it. Sucks. It's been it sucks awful. because it was so good to start the year. It was so it was. good to start the yeah. year. Like, right, for the first, like, couple weeks, it felt like – I remember they were talking about him like, oh, my God, he's going to make all defense in his 19th season. People were and saying he, just, he deserved to be in Defensive Player of the Year conversation. And it just sucks so because I think a, a part of that, too, is forcing him to, to – to, uh, what's the word? To make the dynamic with Russ work, they've been forcing him to play the five, and he's just been drained. Like, I'm pretty yeah. sure last night was the second night of a back-to-back. Um, he shouldn't have played. I, I don't think he should be playing back-to-backs right now. I understand the Lakers need to win games. I do not think LeBron James in his 19th season at age 37 with the load he currently has should be playing back-to-backs. Isn't that the point of Russell Westbrook being on the team? Well, he needs to uh, play enough games to be eligible for the scoring title. True. That is true. And he's not even leading right now. Joel Embiid passed him last night with that 34-point oh, game. Interesting. Giannis, um, Giannis is right there too. Yeah. And KD's already ineligible, so it's just those yeah. three. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I, I, it's just, I think this is a very interesting thing. I don't want to get into the GOAT debate because I think it's very tiring and, and just kind of stupid. Yeah. But um, the whole GOAT debate thing, I think a lot of people's thought process, I know my dad actually feels like this too. Uh, my dad's not a huge basketball fan, but he is very anti-LeBron. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, gr- growing growing up, Less than an hour away from Chicago, we'll do that to you, right? It's, right. it's, it's I'm in Michael Jordan land, right? I'm in Michael right. Jordan land. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it, it's funny. He's a LeBron hater, and a lot of it I think has to do with how guys like MJ and Kobe kind of brought this like the real godly feel to the game with how they acted. Like you would never see go- Kobe on the sideline uh, dancing around and and doing all this weird stuff, tossing water bottles and stuff, and. Right, like he was, and same with MJ. They were just the ultimate competitors, and right. they were just so locked in. Like they just the way they moved around gracefully. Like they just had this godly feel to them. It was like they didn't feel like real people. Mm-hmm. Whereas LeBron is like making a three and like dancing with holding his nuts and like, <laughs> and like I forgot about dancing that. down the court, dancing down the court, <laughs> doing like wild dances and stuff. And I'm pretty sure Kobe did that before too. But like. It wasn't consistent where, like, LeBron, LeBron's putting on a show, right? He's an entertainer while exactly, he's a basketball player. Exactly, exactly. And LeBron, LeBron doesn't do that stuff in the playoffs, though. That's that's something people forget. He doesn't yeah. act like that in the playoffs. When he goes into playoff LeBron mode, like, he's he's he has that feel. Right. But it's the 82-game regular season where he's just acting goofy and doing all these weird weird things and, and flopping and crying to the refs and stuff where it's like people right. don't want to give him the same – credit that they do and they, they don't want to say the greatest of all time is this goofy character <laughs> that's right. like dancing around and doing all this weird stuff and um to me that doesn't really uh hold much weight because obviously I'm, i care more about what they're producing and right exactly to me lebron has the greatest career and he continues to build to it but um yeah i just think uh, a lot of lebron hate is driven from the antics and I, like i said i can relate i my dad <laughs> literally is the same way. He does not like LeBron because of the antics. And it's just, it's pretty funny. He's like, why can't LeBron just play? <laughs> why can't he just right. play? That's what my dad, that's what my dad <laughs> that's says. That's how it feels it, sometimes. It and that's, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head and we're probably going to wrap up here in a second. But um, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said like he, LeBron during the regular season, at least 
he, he's an entertainer. And, you know, over the course of an 82 game regular season, that's a lot of opportunities for people to see clips and videos of your antics. Like that's, that's a lot of time for goofy things to happen. And then all of a sudden this narrative's formed that like LeBron, like, Oh, LeBron's just an entertainer. Like he doesn't actually care that much about basketball, you know, this, that, and the other. And I think that's kind of like the difference between how people view like Michael Jordan and Kobe versus how they view LeBron is like Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant were basketball players. And Mm -hmm. LeBron to some people is an entertainer. And I don't necessarily think like that to me, you know, I don't put a ton of stock in that, but I think that is kind of like the thinking of people who watched LeBron, who also watched Kobe, who also watched Michael Jordan. I think that is kind of the thought process when they watch LeBron. They're kind of just like, you know, what are what are all these antics? Like, this isn't basketball. Like, you complain to the refs on every single possession. Like, stop it. Like, just go play basketball. Get back on defense. Like, why are you walking back? The rest of your team is back on defense. Why aren't you back on defense? And so, you know, all of these different things kind of form this narrative that, you know, LeBron just complains or LeBron just flops and all of this stuff. And it's like, you know, however much stock you put into that, it doesn't change the fact that that is the perception based on the actions that LeBron does on the court. And regardless of how you feel about the GOAT debate or, you know, the narratives around LeBron, you know, being more of an entertainer than he is a basketball player, you know, I don't think those narratives necessarily exist if he's not this like, goofy guy grabbing his nuts after he makes a three or yelling at the refs every time he smokes a layup or something like that it's like man everyone misses yeah. layups like you don't just just because you missed a layup doesn't mean you got fouled like michael jordan missed layups kobe bryant missed layups kareem abdul jabbar missed layups it's okay it doesn't mean you got fouled and and i think a lot of these antics um have kind of hurt lebron's uh status with referees I think because yeah. this year more than ever, it's, it's become evidently clear to me that he does not ha- – he has one of the worst whistles I've ever seen right now. Like, he will get absolutely hammered, no call. And I think that's because for years he wouldn't get hammered and he would make it look like he got hammered, so they don't know what to believe. They, yeah. don't, they don't know if LeBron's actually getting fouled and he's just complaining to complain. And right. I think that's kind of backfired on him. I mean, for a guy who's – in his 19th season, to be getting to the rim at the level he is uh, and finishing at the rim at the level he is, like 79% at the rim right now or something like that again, uh, yeah. again and again and again each season. And for him to only be getting to the line five, six times a game, um, I feel like just that just doesn't statistically match up. And I feel like I don't think there's a league-wide agreement to not send LeBron to the line. I just think they don't know what to call sometimes. They yeah. don't know if he's pulling something or if he's actually fouled. And – uh, for me, like I said, LeBron is my second favorite player ever. Um, I won't sit here and bash him. Uh, the antics are a bit questionable at times, but I, I think that has more to do with his perception in the eyes of other people than it does like affecting him for me. And uh, it, it just stirs up a lot of narratives. Like I bet, I feel like well, part of the reason it's so easy to scrutinize him in the media is because he does so much that leads to scrutinizing. Like he just right. It's easy to scrutinize what he does. And you could attribute that a lot of that to how much media coverage there is today, right? There wasn't this level of media coverage in the 90s or the 2000s. And right. Everything's who knows under a if there's like unseen, 
Right. Who knows if there's unseen footage of Michael Jordan acting like this? I doubt it, but like, who knows, you know? Right. Um, we don't really know. And like you said, it's under a microscope. You really hit it right there. It's just, uh, there's just so much to see. We just have so much, uh, media to consume and, LeBron, obviously, like you said, what he's doing in his 19th season, absolutely incredible. Averaging 38 and 6 on like plus 5 efficiency in your 19th season. Right. When no one else has ever even scored more than like 14 points per game in their 19th season, it's just exactly breathtaking. But uh, I, yeah, it's hard for me to say because I feel like we're asking too much of LeBron in his 19th season because like what he's doing right now is unprecedented and we'll probably never see it again for a very, very long time. Yeah. But at the same time, we're still expecting him. I guess LeBron, his expectations are just so high, right? Like we're expecting him to still be a good defender. We're expecting him to still be a good playmaker and scorer. Mm-hmm. Um, when in reality, uh, he he's showing age and that's going to happen. It's just yeah. going to happen. And who knows what they'll look like in the playoffs? Who knows if LeBron still has that gear? I wouldn't be surprised if he does. I honestly would not be surprised if he goes into the plane and he's playing elite defense again and with Anthony Davis back. I wouldn't be surprised. But I also wouldn't be surprised if he's still showing the same age and just not as um, engaged. And for me, that's okay. Like like I said, the guy's in his 19th season. Um, yeah. I almost think he wants to just get on a beach somewhere and sip some mimosas and just call it a season. <laughs> like, at this mm-hmm. point, you know? And it's just... Who knows? Who knows what's going to happen in the play-in uh, and potentially the playoffs. But, uh, yeah, I definitely think LeBron's antics play a lot into these media narratives about him, what, whether it affects his on-court play or not. For sure. And uh, I, I think on that note, uh, that's going to do it for this episode of The Pin Down. Be sure to check out the links in the description of this episode. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel where we're posting clips from these episodes. Uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter uh, at AlexHoopsYT at uh, KG's Goat. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we will see you next week for another episode.